0: seems like it's been a while since we've talked about Peter, isn't it? How long has it been since we've mentioned Peter? All the way back in Acts chapter 5, and then you remember in Acts chapter 6, there was the issue with the deacons, and they needed somebody to minister to the widows who needed food, and so they appointed those deacons, and of course that highlighted Stephen and Philip and five other deacons that they chose, and so then our attention got diverted to Stephen for a period of time because... After Stephen was selected as one of those early deacons in the church, they brought those slanderous accusations against him and then he was stoned and, and then the minute we get done looking at Stephen, all of a sudden Philip is on the scene and because there is that tremendous persecution, we follow Philip for a period of time and and then we kind of move into Saul of Tarsus and we looked at Saul and the persecution that he uh, brought upon the church in Acts chapter 9 and how he was converted and now we're back with Peter. And you may say, why did we go through all of that? Why did we go from Peter to Stephen to Philip and then to Saul and now we're back to Peter? Wouldn't it seem more natural, having made the transition from Peter through the deacons, through the persecution, to Saul, just to continue with Saul and to tell us what did Saul do? All we know is that he went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And after that, we don't hear much of him until chapter 13. There's, I think, two reasons why Luke takes us back to Peter for a period of time. We're going to go back to Peter for the rest of Acts chapter 9, all of chapters 10, 11, and 12, and then we will be with Saul in chapter 13. Some of you are chomping at the bit to get with Paul in Acts chapter 13. I share that enthusiasm, but I also have to spend eternity with Peter, and so we're going to give him his time as well, and we're going to pick up his trail in Acts chapter 9, and we will get to Saul in due course. In Acts chapter 13, where Luke will pick up the Apostle Paul and he will be the hero and the focus for the rest of the book. But there, as I said, there are two reasons why Luke is bringing us back to Peter. The first is this. Luke is highlighting for us a geographical emphasis. Acts chapters 1 through 5 is all about the church in Jerusalem. It's located there. And Peter and the rest of the apostles are in Jerusalem, and as long as Luke is talking about the church in Jerusalem, he highlights Peter and John and James and the other apostles because they were in that city. But now we've gone geographically from Jerusalem to all over the place. It's no longer just a single city. It's Jerusalem. It's Samaria. It's down in Ethiopia. It's up in Tarsus. It's in Damascus. It's all over the place. And so as Luke is chronicling for us the geographical spread of the church outside of the city of Jerusalem, he wants us to understand it's not just Saul and it's not just Philip that aided in that. Peter was involved in it as well. He wants us to understand Peter was involved in the geographical spread of the church. It wasn't just Saul and Philip. But the second reason is not only is Luke emphasizing for us or highlighting for us a geographical emphasis, but second, he's highlighting for us a Uh, a Gentile emphasis, a Gentile emphasis. No longer are we talking about Jewish Christians in a Jewish city with Jewish apostles in Judea. Now we're talking about Samaritans and Gentiles and Ethiopians and people up in Damascus and people out on the coastal plains of Israel. All of a sudden it has gone from a Jewish church to a Gentile church. And the whole purpose of the book of Acts is to answer these two questions. How did the church which began in Jerusalem get to Rome and all over the Roman Empire? And how did the church which began Jewish become a predominantly Gentile church? That's what he's answering. He doesn't want us to think that Peter was not involved in Gentile conversion because Peter's going to get his feet wet with a Gentile in chapter 10. We're going to get to that. But Luke doesn't want us to think that the Gentile spread of the church, going from Jews the Gentiles, just was Saul and just was Philip. Uh, started out with Stephen debating the Greek-speaking Jews. And then you remember Philip took the gospel of the Samaritans and then down south to Gaza to the Ethiopian eunuch. And after that, the apostle to the Gentiles gets converted. And once the apostle to the Gentiles is converted, suddenly, friends, the doors go open. The Pandora's box is open and the floodgates are open and the gospel goes out all over the place. And Luke wants us to understand Peter was involved in that too. Not only the geographical spread of the church, but also the ethnic spread of the church from Jew to Gentile. So we pick up Peter again in Acts chapter 9, verse 32, and Luke really is setting up Acts chapter 10. This is all sort of preliminary, and Luke sort of gives us this information to answer the question, how did Peter get from Jerusalem to Joppa? Because he's in Joppa when the men come from Caesarea down to Joppa to fetch Peter because Cornelius has had the vision. But we need to find out how is it that Peter got in Joppa? Peter got in Joppa because he was traveling. Verse 32, look at it. As Peter was traveling through all those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately he got up, and all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Peter is out traveling amongst the regions, and as he is out traveling, he comes to the city of Lydda, which is out in the coastal plain of Israel on the other side of the mountains from Jerusalem, out toward the Mediterranean Sea, about three quarters of the way from Jerusalem to the Mediterranean Sea. And there is this city of Lydda, and there are some saints in Lydda. Now this is the first we read of saints who are in the city of Lydda. How did the saints get there? How did the Gospel get to Lydda? You know how it got there? Acts chapter 8, verse 40. Philip left south, which is Gaza, and he went up to the city of Caesarea, which is in the northern part of the land. And Luke says all along the way he was preaching the Gospel in the cities. Guess which cities are right on Philip's course north along the Mediterranean Sea? Lydda and Joppa. So Peter is likely visiting the converts from Philip's evangelistic ministry. Word has spread that the Gospel has been planted in Lydda, and so Peter is traveling through there. He comes to the city of Lydda. There are some saints there, and not only some saints, but there's one man whom is likely not a believer, Aeneas. Why do I say he's likely not a believer? Because Luke says there was a certain man. He doesn't say a certain disciple like he does in verse 36 with Dorcas and Tabitha. Luke seems to differentiate between believers and unbelievers by calling some of them certain men or certain women and others a certain disciple or a certain follower of Jesus. He highlights that Dorcas is a believer, but Aeneas is not. We're not told how Peter came across Aeneas. Did he come to a church meeting? Was he a relative of another believer in the city? We don't know. But while Peter is there, he comes across Aeneas and he assesses the situation. Here is this man who has been bedridden for eight years. How old is Aeneas? We don't know. Maybe he was an older man. Maybe he was crippled because of an industrial accident, a work accident. Maybe it was a degenerative disease. Maybe it was something that doctors could not diagnose or cure. But he has been laying on a bed for eight years. Now, if you're bedridden for eight years, what happens to your muscles? They begin to atrophy, don't they? They begin to sort of waste away. The less you use your muscles, and I'm talking about the one between your ears as well, the less you use your muscles, the less use you get out of your muscles because they begin to atrophy and sort of just deteriorate and and waste away. Uh, Aeneas was likely a very scrawny individual, somebody who was unable to care for himself, unable to provide for himself. He is dependent upon everybody else for his sustenance and for his care. He can do nothing. He is bedridden. And Peter comes upon the situation and he sees Aeneas. And he says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. He utters a statement of fact that becomes reality the minute it leaves his mouth. Jesus Christ heals you. Take up your bed, make your bed, roll it up, get out of it and walk. Get up, make your bed, do away with your bed. Aeneas doesn't need his bed anymore. Why? Because he's been healed. And the text says that immediately Aeneas got up and he did what Peter told him to do. He rolled up what had been his home for eight years. Now something has happened here. It's a physical healing, but folks, it's more than just a healing. It's more than just the ability to get up. There is a muscle rehabilitation that takes place in the healing as well. He's been bedridden for eight years. And I want you to notice one of the characteristics of biblical healings. It was immediate. It was immediate. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up. And he got up. Just like in Acts chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, when Peter saw the beggar at the beautiful gate of the temple coming into the temple for worship in the middle of the afternoon. And Peter sees him standing there, and the beggar says, I need some coins. Give me some money. And Peter says, I I don't have any silver. I don't have any gold. But what I do give to you, I give to you in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. And Peter reached down and grabbed a hold of his hands. And Luke says... Immediately, his feet and ankles were strengthened, and he stood up. And he didn't hobble into the temple. He comes running into the temple, jumping and leaping and praising God in front of all of the people. This is Aeneas. It was immediate. Folks, the New Testament knows nothing of progressive healings. These are the type of healings you see on television at the healing crusades. They're progressive. You come to the crusade, you come up on stage, you get your healing, you go home and by faith you continue to claim your healing and you get better and better. That's not a biblical healing. The New Testament knows nothing of claiming a healing by faith. And if you don't have enough faith, you don't get the miracle. The New Testament knows nothing about a relapse of a healing. Aeneas didn't walk for a couple days and then fall back down on his bed and be bedridden for the rest of his life. There's no such thing as a biblical, miraculous healing where you get a relapse after a week or two and eventually die from the thing that you've been healed of. Those are the characteristics of charlatans and false prophets and false teachers who woo the sheep and fleece the sheep. The Bible knows nothing of those type of healings. Biblical healing was immediate. And then look what Luke says. All in Lydda and Sharon who saw this, they turned to the Lord. Just like the beggar in the temple, when he came in following the apostles, Peter and John, after Peter had healed him, leaping and praising God, Luke says everybody saw him and they took note. Hey, that's the guy who was at the temple gate begging. That's the beggar. And so they flocked to Peter and John and Peter preached the gospel to them. The same thing happens with Aeneas. Everybody in the city of Sharon and Lydda, they see Aeneas. They understand he's been bedridden for eight years. And now he has been healed. And there's no other way to describe it other than a genuine, miraculous event. Not only was it immediate, but listen, the second characteristic of biblical miracles and genuine miracles of healing, they are verifiable. They will stand the test of rational scrutiny. They cannot be explained as a psychosomatic illness They cannot be explained as the results of a stage hypnotist who woos the people and gets you worked up into a frenzy and so you stumble out of your wheelchair and stumble across the stage. And That's not the way biblical miracles were. That's not the way healings were. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you and He stands up and He is completely healed in an instant. It was an immediate healing. It was a complete healing. And it stood the test of rational scrutiny. Because Dr. Luke tells us he was healed and it was immediate. Now there's a lot about this episode that we don't know because Luke is pretty brief, isn't he? He spends more time with the beggar at the temple gate back in Acts chapter 3, but he doesn't tell us everything we might want to know about Aeneas. We're not told how old he is. We're not told how he got crippled. We're not told whether this resulted in him becoming a believer. I would assume it did. Everybody who saw it became believers. We're not told how he was paralyzed or, or even who his relatives were or how Peter came upon him. Luke just kind of brushes over the incident and there are some principles that we're going to draw from it. But he moves on to the second account beginning in verse 36 of this woman who had died. Her name is Dorcas or Tabitha. She has two names. One Hebrew, one Greek. They both mean gazelle. And Dorcas, verse 36, says... There, she was a disciple, so she's a believer. Aeneas likely is not. Dorcas is a disciple. And not only is she a disciple, but friends, she demonstrated her faith in a certain way. Look at verse 36. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And verse 37, it happened at that time that she fell sick and died, and when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. She demonstrated her faith in that she did deeds of kindness and charity continually. This is the female version of Barnabas. This is a woman who was generous. She was gracious. She was encouraging. Her deeds and kindness and charity and generosity were visible to everybody, evident to everybody. She was a disciple and friends, she was one of those disciples that serves behind the scene, always doing nice things for people. What was she doing? Verse 39 tells us that after she was dead and they brought Peter in there, there were some widows who were standing by Peter and they were weeping and crying and showing to Peter all of the garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Now widows in that culture were destitute because they couldn't get jobs and their only means of support was either the church or friends or relatives or children. They had no other means of support. They couldn't earn money for themselves. So widows were By and large, just destitute unless their husband left them a whole host of means by which to get by. So likely, Dorcas is making garments and providing them for destitute widows in the church. And they're weeping and crying and showing to Peter, look what she did for us. And what I want you to notice about Dorcas is how much she has missed, even though you and I might consider her ministry to be rather insignificant. We don't usually evaluate ministries like the one Dorcas had. In terms of being earth shattering and, 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 and earth shaking and phenomenal ministry. She wasn't an apostle. She wasn't a healer. She wasn't a preacher. She wasn't a teacher. She wasn't an elder in the church. She wasn't any of those things. What did she do? Well, from a human perspective, she worked in her home, she made garments, and she gave them to widows. But folks, look how important her ministry was. Look how significant she was. She was so significant that when she died, her ministry and she was Desperately and direly missed. Let me tell you something. If you want to die and pass from the scene and have nobody miss you, then just don't serve anybody. Just don't do anything for anybody. Don't use your spiritual gift. Don't get involved in meeting people's needs. Don't get involved in serving other people. Don't get involved in pouring out your life for other people in the cause of the gospel or in the cause of Christ. And you will pass from the scene and your name will collect dust. Dorcas is not such a woman. She was so involved, so generous, so giving, that when she died, friends, it left a hole in the church. And they heard when she died, they had heard that Peter was at Lydda, about a nine-mile walk. And so they washed the body and they put it in an upper room. They didn't bury her right away. In that culture and at that time, they buried people, most of the time, the same day that they died. Why? Because in that kind of heat, the body begins to decompose rather quickly. But they didn't do that with Dorcas. Why? Well, they had heard that Peter had caused Aeneas to walk over Lydda. And they understand that if Peter can make a lame person walk, Peter can raise the dead. It's the same power of God. If God's not limited in making somebody walk, God's not limited in raising somebody from the dead. So wash her body, put it in the upper room, and send two men to go get Peter. And if Peter chooses not to raise her from the dead or not to do anything with her, then we can always bury her. But they put off the burial until Peter comes. And so they send for Peter, come quickly. And Peter comes rushing down. And when he shows up, as I said, the widows are there. They're in that upper room with Dorcas. They're crying. They're weeping. They're showing to Peter, look what she did to us. Look how much she meant to us. So Peter says, leave the room. And they all leave the room. And then Peter kneels down and he prays. And I wish I could have been a fly on the wall in that room to hear what he prayed. But Peter kneels down and he prays. And once he's talked to God... Then he stands up and he talks to a corpse. Tabitha, her eyes. And her eyes open up. And she sees Peter. And she sits up. And Peter grabs her hand and she stands up and he takes her outside and he presents her to all of the saints. And look at the end of the narrative, verse 42. What happened? Everybody turned to the Lord. Everybody turned to the Lord. That was the fruit of this ministry. It was a demonstration that Peter, as a spokesman for Christ, had the power to heal, to raise the dead, just like Jesus did, because Jesus had given him that power, given him that ability, as a testimony that what he said was true, and he was a divine spokesman. Have you ever woken up from anesthesia? You're laying on an operating table, and they ask you a question. What day were you born? You start to give them your birthday, Next thing you know, you're waking up in pain. Now, how does that happen? And I've woken up from anesthesia a few times. And friends, when you've woken up from anesthesia, there seems to be a gap in your life. I mean, you're not just asleep. You're, you almost feel dead, like you've been dead for a period of time because you don't remember anything. It's a deep, deep sleep for those of you who've never been under anesthesia. I often wonder, how, what was it like for Dorcas to wake up having been dead? I don't think she remembered glory. I don't think she remembered heaven or the presence of Christ. But she woke up. And she had been dead for several hours. It's a nine-mile trip down there. It's a nine-mile trip back with Peter. So she's been dead for a while. And even before her body decomposes, Peter is there and he raises her from the grave. Now, I want you to notice something about these two incidences. first one is this. There's no clear pattern here. The Bible doesn't give us any pattern by which you and I can follow to do miracles. It doesn't give us a mantra to chant. It doesn't give us a prayer to recite. It doesn't give us three steps. You, you pray, you sprinkle holy water, you anoint with oil, you jiggle some beads, you do this to perform a miracle. There's no pattern. One's a believer, one's an unbeliever. One's a man, one's a woman. One's sick, one is dead. Peter prays before one, but not before the other. He uses the name of Jesus in one miracle, but not the other. There's no pattern to follow. And there's a reason for that. Because you and I aren't intended to do miracles. The apostles just did it. And I've always asked myself the question, how did the apostles know that it was God's will to heal a certain individual? Have you ever wondered that? How did the apostles know that in this situation, this person, it was God's will to use that apostle as an instrument to heal that individual? How did they know that? We never get any record that Jesus or any of the apostles ever failed to heal somebody that they tried to heal. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, get up and walk. <clears throat> I can't. Oh, and that worked back at the temple in Jerusalem. I can't figure out why that didn't work here. How did he know that it was God's will to heal the beggar at the temple gate? How did Peter know it was God's will to heal Aeneas? How did Peter know it was God's will to raise Dorcas from the dead? I don't know I've never had that gift and I never will have that gift so I'll never know that but somehow they understood somehow they discerned this is the will of God and he's going to use me to do it and so they would trust in the power of God in the sovereignty of God in the will of God and yield themselves as an instrument and be the vessels through which that healing or that raising power would take place so they did it no record that they ever tried and it was half successful or almost successful or not successful. They just did it. They were instruments, and, and they raised the dead. Um, when you look at miracles like this in these two events, wh- what I want to do now is I want to switch from the events that we've just looked at and try and take three principles that you and I can apply to our own lives and our own ministry. Because I'm I'm rather confident today that I'm not talking to any healers here this morning. I have that confidence. I'm absolutely certain that nobody here has the gift of healing. Now, if you would differ with me and you think you have the gift of healing, then I'd like to have lunch with you this afternoon down at the hospital cafeteria so that you can show me that you have the gift of healing. These men raised the dead and they exercised their gifts and their miracles in the power of Christ at the will of God and not at the will of the Apostle. Why didn't Peter raise Stephen from the dead when Stephen was stoned? That was not God's will. Why didn't Paul heal Trophimus? He said, Trophimus, I've left him sick at Miletus. Epaphroditus was sick almost to the point of death. Paul was sick. Why didn't he heal himself from his thorn in the flesh? Why didn't he go to Peter and say, okay, Peter, you heal me, I'll heal you. Then we'll both heal Timothy for his his stomach problems. Why didn't they do that? Because it was not God's will that everybody be healed, and it was not God's will that everybody be raised from the dead. But it was God's will that some be healed, uh, so far as we've seen in the book of Acts, all unbelievers, and it was God's will that Dorcas be raised from the dead. Stephen was a power player. I mean, it would have been nice to have him back from the dead, wouldn't it? After being stoned, this was the guy that argued publicly with Saul's buddies in the synagogue from Cilicia. And he bested all of them in an open debate. So much so they couldn't argue with him, they decided to kill him. It would have been good to have him back, but Peter doesn't raise Stephen from the dead, but somehow he discerns it is God's will for Dorcas, and he's the instrument. Now here's the three principles. First one is this. You and I need to understand that it's Christ who gives us opportunities to serve. You'll notice when Peter is called, when Peter arrives at Lydda and he's given this opportunity with Aeneas, that he's not on vacation, he's not, um, uh, stagnant. He's serving. He's working. He's on an itinerant ministry, traveling through the regions, visiting the saints. After the persecution had died down because Saul was converted, Peter and some of the other apostles left Jerusalem feeling safe to leave the flock there, and Peter went on a traveling ministry. And when the Lord gives him the opportunity with Aeneas to minister... And the opportunity with Dorcas to minister to those people, he's not RVing, he's not camping, he's not on vacation, he's not sitting back waiting for the Lord to drop some ministry opportunity in his lap. He's busy, active, and serving. And those are the people to whom the Lord gives more and more opportunities to serve. Let me let you in on a on a small secret. When the Lord wants something big done, he gets a busy disciple to do it. Not a disciple that's sitting there waiting for God to drop something in his lap. He finds somebody who's yielded, who's serving, who's faithful, who's available, who's willing, and who's involved, and he gives them another opportunity. I'm convinced that's the way the Lord works. And you will find that the more opportunities you take, the more opportunities for service open up to you. Because the problem with most of us is not that we have a hard time knowing what to say no to. The problem with most of us is we have a hard time knowing what to say yes to and that we just never say yes. So we never get involved. That's not Peter. Peter's active, he's serving, and Christ gives him these opportunities, more and more opportunities right in the midst of serving. Every time you walk through a door, it opens up ten more for you to walk through. And when you get involved and you start serving, and you're serving the Lord in that kind of capacity, and with that kind of fervor, you find that before long you've got so much to do, you can't do it all. Because the Lord just commits so much to your trust, and that's the way Jesus said it works. When you're faithful in small things, he commits even bigger things to you. But you got to start with the small things first. Second, not only is it Christ who gives us the opportunity to serve, but second, it's Christ who gives us the power to serve. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Not Peter the vicar of Christ heals you, or Peter the great apostle heals you. What does he say? It's Jesus Christ who heals you. From the get-go, from the moment Peter saw Aeneas, He did not want to give opportunity for Aeneas or anybody else who saw this to think that Peter did this by his own abilities or by his own strength or by his own power. He wants everybody to understand that what is happening here is a supernatural, sovereign act and I'm just the vessel through which it happens. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. It's the Lord who gives the power to use your gift. And that's true whether it's Peter with the gift of miracles or you with the gift of helps or the gift of teaching. Dorcas and Peter had something in common. Both of them served the Lord, and it was the Lord who used both of them. Because it was the power of the Lord through Dorcas and through Peter. It's the Lord who gives us opportunities. It's the Lord who gives us the strength to serve. You notice what Peter does when he showed up at Dorcas's house? He knelt down and he prayed. Whether it's publicly announcing something to Aeneas, or privately in a room just all by himself, Peter is utterly and totally and completely dependent upon the power and the grace of God to do anything through. Because he knows he's just a branch. And like us, unless he abides in the vine, he can do what? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Your gift of teaching, your gift of helps, your gift of compassion, your gift of mercy, your gift of giving, whatever your spiritual gift is, whatever your area of service is, it's the Lord who gives you the strength to do it. He doesn't gift you and call you and give you opportunity and say, okay, you go do it. Have at her. Have fun. It's the Lord who gives us the strength to serve. Third, it's the Lord who brings fruitfulness from our service. In both instances, it was the Lord who caused all of those people to turn to him because he manifested his power through Peter. When Peter healed Aeneas, all in Sharon and Lydda who saw it, they turned to the Lord. Everybody in Joppa who saw Peter, who saw Dorcas alive after she had been dead, they turned to the Lord. And it was the Lord who brought that fruit from Peter's ministry. And you and I are not responsible to, to produce fruit. It's the vine that produces the fruit through the branches. The secret is not in struggling to push out fruit in our ministry. The secret is to abide in the vine and to let the vine produce the fruit through us. That's what Paul says, First. Corinthians chapter 3 verse 7. It's not the one who sows, and it's not the one who waters who's anything. It is God who gives the increase. And so we preach, we teach, we minister, we help, we exercise compassion, we evangelize, we discipleship, we disciple, and then we say, Lord, if there's going to be any fruit, it must be because you have done something through this. For it certainly cannot come from me. Because you and I are not able to produce fruit. It's God who gives us the opportunity. It's God who gives us the power and it's God who produces the fruit from our ministry. Peter's a perfect example of what you and I should do. He's serving, he's available, he's willing, he's active. The Lord gives him an opportunity. He trusts in the Lord. He steps out and uses that opportunity to serve Christ, and then he watches God produce the fruit through all of that. Now, folks, verse 43 says this: that Peter stayed many days at Joppa with a tanner named Simon. That's more than just a expression that he was at such and such a resort or he was staying with such and such a person. That is a significant detail because tanners were considered by the Jews to be an unclean profession. An unclean profession. The Lord is doing something in Peter's heart and verse 43 indicates that this is the beginning of something here. And we're going to see next week what it is that the Lord is doing in Peter's heart. He's staying with a tanner and that's significant. And you read the passage, you read chapter 10 and chapter 11 and ask yourself, why is that a significant detail? And we'll meet back here next week and we'll look at it. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank You for Your Word and we thank You that You not only stoop to save us, but that You stoop to use us. And we are grateful that You give to us opportunities and that You give to us the power. And Lord, we do trust You that You will be the one to produce fruit in our lives and fruit from our service. Whether it is Sunday school, Awana, women's ministry, preaching, teaching, serving others behind the scenes, whatever it is, we know that it's you who's called us to do it. And it's you who have have gifted us to do it and then given us the power and all the glory goes to you. We cannot accept any of it. We can only say that it is Jesus Christ who does this. And by your grace, we would be vessels to do it. We thank you that you do that in us in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.